They were doing fast action sequences through rural dirt roads, which are in the outskirts of India. So there's a lot of fecal matter and God knows what else besides that dengue. Oh, my stars. And we just leaned into risk like Netflix does and shot there for three weeks. But we had to build out a really robust safety plan. And the producer of the movie was at the hospital so much checking on crew members that had dengue, they ended up setting up a little room for him. So on my side, I was terrified that I had a show in India with crew members who are precious cargo over there getting sick. And I ended up getting on a plane and going out there myself, just showing support and trying to get out of that small town as soon as we could. Welcome to The Practical Filmmaker, an educational podcast brought to you by the Filmmaker Institute and Sunscreen Film Festival, where industry professionals talk nuts and bolts and the steps they took to find their success today. On today's show, Noelle Green takes us into her job as a director of physical production at Netflix, what that looks like and how the company is working towards inclusion in the industry. Find the full transcripts and more at thepracticalfilmmaker.com. I'm your host, Tanya Musgrave, and today we have Noelle Green, one of the directors of physical production for the series team at Netflix. You can see some of her work as executive in charge of production on films such as Extraction, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, The Irishman, Bird Box, Always Be My Maybe, and many, many, many more. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So fill us in. How did you get where you are today? I know it's a very loaded question. I have been in the business for probably about 25, 30 years now. And I did 20 years of freelance before I became um, a studio exec. So uh, assistant on different shows all over the United States. And then I became an executive maybe about 10 years ago. So now I am switching over to series. That was a very recent thing, yes? <laughs> Starting today. <laughs> so, okay. For right now, I'm, I'm, filmi- I'm familiar with the production side of things. Uh, definitely more on the indie side. But I'm getting to the point where I'm in more of the producing and managerial side uh, in, in that role. However, the majority of us are unfamiliar with the executive side and what that actually looks like. So what pieces of the machine do you connect together? Like what wouldn't work if your job didn't exist? We do the budgeting and boarding process. We do the oversight of that with the producers and then we oversee the whole production period. So they would still make the movie without me, but the studio (laughs) side, that would be the missing beat as an exec overseeing the actual making of the production from a schedule and budget point of view. Mm -hmm. So when you said that you were on the series team, does that look like all of you on one project? Does that look like one of you on your own projects? Are you all kind of facing in your own corners? Or is there like a whole team of you working on one project? There is about 50 people on the series team. And there's about 10 of me And we all get our own slew of shows. I've just started on the team, so I don't know exactly how many I'll have, but I'm guessing it'll be five to eight shows in the new year. Mm, Oh oh my gosh. (laughs) Lots of content, lots of people at Netflix. Yeah, yeah. I know it was only your first day, but and so I don't know how much of a comparison you'd be able to pull, but what kind of changes do you see on the horizon from, you know, doing films to series? The pace is very different. So when you get on a film, you're just making one show 
And it's an hour and a half long and it can take six months to a year or longer. Series is coming in and you may be making six or 10 mini movies back to back to back. So one is done, it goes into post and starts rolling and you need to pick up the second one. So there's a higher turnover and a much, much faster pace in television. What is your specific role now then? I mean, I, like what, what's kind of like your typical day? Are you, are you talking with, you know, more agents? Are you talking more with the talent or, you know, like how, or, or the, like the directors and the above the line and all of that fun stuff where you're putting the team together? Or are you talking more with other producers rather than production? I don't know. <laughs> I'm mostly talking with the producer of the movie and finding out each day to day, how is the pace going? Are you hiring crew? Who are you bringing on for your department heads? Are you building sets? Are you looking for practical locations? And how's that looking for your scheduling and budgeting plan? Because mm-hmm. they come up with the schedule and the budget in the very beginning, and then they try to stick within those parameters throughout the prep and shoot period. Mm-hmm. How much veto power do you have? I have some veto power. If if they're doing something that is not safe on set, maybe it's Mm -hmm. an action sequence that has a couple beats that that are outside of the true safety parameters, we push back. We have a lot of COVID protocols now, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. They're not popular on set, but we need them in order to keep our shows running. So pushing back on people trying to change the rules. We have... We have some veto power, but the truth is we like to give our partners a lot of creative freedom. Mm. I think there's a lot of joy in the Netflix partnership through that. Mm -hmm. We have veto power, but I would say we don't we don't use it as much as we could or, you know, we don't want to. I'm actually really interested in your journey because at least from the IMDb stocking (laughs) that I did, um, your first listed productions were like Shooter and Indiana Jones. (laughs) So like even under your, like, you know, the additional crew section where like people put their throwaway roles, (laughs) you know, like go back in the 90s, there was still like Almost Famous and The X-Files. So like all big names. Can you take us back to the beginning? So it's all about getting your foot in the door for the first time and then proving yourself and showing who you are. So I started out as an assistant. My first movie was Heart and Souls, and it was probably 94, 95. It was a long, long time ago. Mm. And I did dry cleaning runs. I took care of my boss's dogs. I did all kinds of things in the assistant role. And what I really did, though, was in any downtime was I studied the set and I studied the departments on the set and I was watching the department heads all with the purpose of I wonder what I'll be good at. I wonder what will be appealing to me, but also making sure I understand how the wheel spins. Mm -hmm. So I was an assistant on several movies. I also did higher learning which was great. We were on a college campus a lot for that movie and just learned about like all the sets and moving around and everything that goes into um, just your day-to-day work, your prop department prepping, your costume department prepping. I fell in love with the overall process and I knew I wanted to become a producer myself, not the creative kind who goes out and finds the script and the director but the production kind, the line producer who you hire to budget and you know schedule and oversee your production period. So after several movies as an assistant, I moved into the production office. And once I was in the production office, 
that department I call Grand Central Station. You take care of all the different departments on the show. And through that process, I knew more and more I wanted to continue to be part of the overall eyes on the show. And I've just moved up since then and and on X-Files and Memoirs of a Geisha, some of my movies from the 90s. Mm. I was a production coordinator. I was in the office. I was reporting to the producers. And I just slowly moved my way up. Does that include joining a union? Were you part of that? I was part of a union. My particular position in the office wasn't a union position in the beginning of my career, but it became one. And I did join the union and was part of that until I joined the studio system. Is it possible to get to a managerial side of things without joining a union? Is that even possible? Absolutely. To get to become a studio exec, you don't need to be in the union. You just need to get your foot in the door at the studio and then start to work your way up. The unions just cover many of the positions on a movie set, Mm -hmm. but nothing outside of that when it comes to the studios. So for those who would love to kind of follow in these footsteps for a more managerial side on a studio side, kind of like being able to oversee more, where could you see some potential entry points for those people? There are a million assistant and PA jobs out there, and that's the foot in the door for everybody. Don't turn any PA job or assistant down because both of those positions, you're reporting to people who are overseeing the show and you get that purview of all those different departments. Mm -hmm. And when you become a PA or an assistant, you can either do it on a set and learn the mechanics of how a set runs the day in and day out, or you can go to a production company or a studio Mm -hmm. and be part of the team that oversees the process, the money. I can't say that many people who get into film are that excited about the like the accounting side of things necessarily. Man, I've I've been trying to think of other roles that, you know, we could have on this show too and I'm just like, all right, who do we not hear from? It's like the accountants and, you know, that kind of thing. What other jobs are there that really have nothing to do with, you know, like knowing what gaff tape is or, you know, like that kind of thing? The accounting department is another part of Grand Central Station. Every single department has a role on the show and you can't make a movie without one of the departments, but the money and accounting is, is the absolute hub of where everything happens. And the accountant works closely with the producer. So when the producer sits down, they schedule the movie, but then they have to flush out a budget and figure how much it is to make it. And they do that in partnership with an accountant. And the closer they work together, the producer starts focusing more on the overall prep of the movie where the accountant is number crunching Mm -hmm. and putting in, there's 30 departments on a show. Every department hands in a budget, putting in those numbers. They have a whole team of people who has to help put in that information and then pay the bills. Accounting is like the quiet hero in the background. Mm -hmm. You don't see their work. You don't hear their work but it's splashed all over screen because we couldn't afford anything without them. So I know that you are more on the side of the Netflix originals. Do you guys ever work with indie filmmakers or is that something more along the lines of acquisitions? We do it all at Netflix and there's a million different divisions that cover all of that. So there is an indie film division and they Mm -hmm. do right now they're doing movies that are 50 million and below. Mm -hmm. But there's a part of the team that really focuses on the true indies that are like five to 15 million dollars. 
And then within that indie team, some of the execs handle acquisitions. Mm -hmm. So while some are overseeing 15 million dollar originals there's others that are going out to film festivals and meeting with agents and looking Mm. for indie work that needs a distribution deal and then you've got the studio films and those are 50 million to 300 million and it goes on i actually have a question a listener question that piggybacks on that so a listener question from our instagram at practical filmmaker they wanted to know what is the department to approach to get a show or a movie on netflix There is a submission email because Netflix gets so many submissions. Got it. I don't know that, but I can get you that information. Okay. All right. Yeah. And we can link that in the show notes as well. I I don't know. It just kind of seems like this this elusive unicorn to get a show on Netflix. (laughs) There is so, so many submissions that they do require you either submit through an agent Mm -hmm. or this email that I need to give you. Tell me about Ion. Oh, this is the best. My favorite thing about Netflix is that it's so different from all the studios that if you see a hole in the business and there's a way you can build support to make that hole full, they encourage it. So there was a group of us that wanted to do more inclusion work Mm. and they said, okay, what do you want to do? And we formed a group called ION, which stood for Inclusion Outreach network. And we did a lot of incredible events and partnerships for several years. We were so successful that the company decided to hire someone. We're all employees with full-time jobs that are doing this on the side. They took it so seriously. They ended up hiring a woman named Tiffany Burrell-Lewis, who is now running an inclusion program for the below the line portion of the company. So all the productions. ION's main purpose was to help get underrepresented people their foot in the door. So whether it was going to schools and talking to young children about opportunities or going to colleges and, and setting up recruiting, or what I was really focusing was freelance crew members on our sets. And we have worldwide sets. So there's thousands and thousands of people on our sets every day. Let's help create more opportunity for underrepresented to get that opportunity and break up that historical, you know, Joe's brother's cousin's sister Mm -hmm. is going Mm -hmm. to get the break and give everybody that open door and that opportunity. So training programs, workshops, seminars, grassroots search, looking for people, everything we can do to help find talent Mm -hmm. and help build them a bridge to the bigger side of the business. Is that also casting? Casting too. Wow. I focus primarily on crew because I'm production and I'm below okay. the line. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of the creative executives that focus on story uh-huh. and characters are working on getting more inclusivity as well. Okay. I mean, I, I know not everybody is going to be able to actually see your face when you're saying this, but you positively lit up when you started talking about Ion, for sure. I mean, like, that's great to to be so passionate about something that's so needed. Because I would have to say personally, and I don't I don't think about it too, too much, because I was fortunate to have a mother in leadership. So being a leader was not ever anything foreign to me. And I uh, a little background. <laughs> I don't know. I was I was adopted into a Caucasian family. Me and... too. Wait, what? Stop. <laughs> and so, I mean, I don't know if you had this this kind of uh, experience, but it was 
I wasn't taught to look for anything. So I never let anything really bother me when it came to getting the jobs that I wanted to get. It was just like, all right, this needs to happen. So I'm going to go after it. And I guess like people just didn't really <laughs> question. Right. Yeah. And I, I don't even remember like the the first time I kind of even saw something on screen that halfway even represented a story kind of like mine was it was, you know, a summer Netflix thing. It was to all the boys I loved before mm-hmm. Lana Condor. I remember looking her up because I mean, she was an Asian lead and it wasn't even really a thing. It wasn't made into a thing. It wasn't like, Oh, she's an Asian actress. Yeah. But then I looked at, I looked it up and she too was adopted into a Caucasian family. I'm just like, this is the first time that I've ever seen anybody that, that was like me. I mean, and I didn't really even think about it. I mean, because I don't know. I, I'm I'm curious what your what your experience was, especially because I know this now. That's crazy. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? I have so many things to say, but one thing you said yeah. was you were talking about leadership and how you yeah. were raised with a mother that's a leader. Yeah. Me too. And there's so many kids out there that don't have that, that I yeah. see that as my role to be that woman speaking up for them and saying, you can, you are smart enough. You are bright enough. The color of your skin doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. We want your brain. We just want the best brains, the best possible people yeah. for the job. And I was raised with more of that sprinkled in, but not everybody is. And so mm-hmm. there's so much work that has to be done to get everybody in the same bowl and working together. Yeah. But I think also just being a person of color adopted into a white family mm-hmm you see more possibilities and inclusion because you grew up in it, as long as your parents did it right. It's a very interesting thing because a lot of the discussions that have been happening the last few years, I've almost not known where to insert myself, you know, because you know and understand that side of things, you know so much more of the culture behind it that, you know, you know, every single culture has it's pitfalls. We're one big family that, you know, and you know, like family can be like, uh, you know, like the most confounding thing on earth. You're just like, you don't understand necessarily why it is the way you are, but you kind of stick through it. And you're just like, oh, wait, you know, like that's kind of the importance of the family of you communicate and you stick together and like, you're all surviving it and not only surviving it, you're thriving together because of your differences. And, you know, a lot of the conversations, regarding you know inclusion and stuff like that I was just like I'm so thankful for it because I've had more people now the the latest one that I think of is a professor I was talking with we were putting something together it was a documentary panel and he was a documentarian and so I was just like hey do you mind moderating this panel and he's white male he's the one that told me he's just like hey I just wanted to bring it to your attention that there are no females on this panel and they're also all white and i wanted to just let you know that it's something that i noticed and i think that we can we can figure something out and i don't necessarily think of myself as the end all be all so if you want somebody else to moderate this and i was just like oh my gosh you're so right because i wasn't like in some ways i feel like it's a good thing that i'm just like oh i wasn't even thinking about it because it was just documentary you were thinking like you're a documentarian be a documentarian but 100%, oh my gosh, as, as soon as I saw the lineup, I'm just like, this is a problem. Yeah, <laughs> this yeah. is a major problem. Yeah. So yes, 
the amount of conversation that you can spark through initiatives like ION is fantastic. So are you still involved with that? Um, we decided to dissolve ION, but not the work. So we okay. didn't need ION anymore because now Tiffany Burrell Lewis oh, has okay. a team okay. and she's got full-time staffers that are, their job is to come up with initiatives and programs for more inclusion on our productions globally. There's teams globally working on it. So I think it will be highly elevated in the next year or two. We have real opportunity to step up, I think, and, and lead the way that Netflix likes to and is good at. If you are a person of color or a minority, what is a good way to kind of tap into those resources that Netflix is providing? We're coming up with all these programs. We're going out and we're looking for people, Mm -hmm. but where can they come if they're looking for us? Who can they reach out to? Tiffany's building out her structure. So over time, I'm sure there will be a place they can come to Netflix. Mm -hmm. I'm underrepresented. I'm looking for opportunities or training. Where do I go? Mm Yeah, um, yeah, but yeah. for now, we're outward facing looking, looking for people. One of the parts of the show is where we ask about tools of your trade and gear and gadgets says like, you know, old reliables and stuff like that. But I'm also really curious about your your favorite resources, like what you what you use in your job and what resources you pull from. You know, it's interesting. Netflix likes to build a lot of internal tools and collect data. So I was at another company before that didn't do that. And you would be on IMDb searching for crew. You'd be just doing a lot of search through external search engines. At Netflix, they have an app called Origin Story. And you can look up any movie, any TV show that was ever made at Netflix and look up all the information about the show. Oh, my gosh. This sounds fascinating. Resource is internal. But I also use IMDb quite a bit when we're looking for people. Mm -hmm. I read Deadline every day to make sure I'm caught up on industry news. I mm-hmm. read Variety. I read Hollywood Reporter. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about general resources or inclusive resources, everything? Anything that you thought of. I like, uh, you know, there are some people that was just like, oh, this social media account is like actually really good for this. Or, you know, sometimes there's software <laughs> that people are just like, hey, yeah, this app is actually really, really useful. The main things that I usually ask are gear and gadgets, like what's your old reliable and then what's your new reliable your new favorite one that revolutionizes how you work you know it's interesting for me origin story isn't at any of the other studios so i've been at netflix for five years but that's my favorite tool yeah they now have another tool and this is internal again but it ingests our rap sketch our rap report every day so how many hours did you shoot how many pages did you shoot? And we can look at all our projects and average out Wow, what our days are looking like. And that's wow. helpful information to just see how we're doing overall as a company. And then maybe this is a developer question, but what is the what is the closest thing that you can think of that would be available for filmmakers wanting a similar tool <laughs> that's not available? I you know it, <laughs> no, origin. Exactly. Origin stories, man, that sounds like an incredible thing just to just like, I, I'd i be so fascinated to read any of those. That's awesome. They're all internal tools. So I'm sorry to say Netflix likes to keep get yes. data and to keep data. Yes, yes. 
<laughs> and of course, share it externally as we learn over time. How how much do you think that that's going to stick around? Not not the not the apps and you know the internal tools and stuff like that. But you know, I'm I'm part of a Facebook group for distributors, and it's for indie filmmakers who are looking for distributors and aggregators and all that fun stuff. And you know, to talk about hey are they a good distributor or like, no, stay away. And, you know, people just looking out for each other. And, you know, it's no secret that Netflix likes its secrets, right? And I'm just curious how long or if you think that that is going to be a sustainable thing, you know, for filmmakers who might just get frustrated at the fact that like, they won't see, they, they won't let me see any of my stats, like, uh, like how well it's performing or, you know, how much it could earn or like how many views I got. So, there's streaming services that are coming out the wazoo. Everybody's got them up to their eyeballs. So how sustainable do you feel like that is? I feel like it'll be forced out and we'll have our box office report once. I don't know if it'll be Netflix or another company that starts to report their numbers first, mm-hmm. but Netflix has been sharing information with filmmakers. I would say maybe it's not public. So it's not trickling out to Variety or Hollywood Reporter, but the filmmakers themselves, Mm -hmm. they're hearing performance reports. But again, I would say that Netflix is keeping it on the quieter side. But like, we just had our biggest opener ever in the film site, Red Notice. Oh, So I know they're sharing their big wins and their successes. And Mm -hmm. like Squid Game this year, they shared the high level of success of that. And the most exciting thing about that show to me is global viewership and the appreciation for global content. Mm -hmm. And that's, to me, the biggest magic of Netflix is they are literally bringing the world together through content. And it's all through, you know, subbing and dubbing. We can watch any content from anywhere and appreciate it at the same level. Because there's really so much. I remember talking to any, any of my friends that might have been from Australia or Europe or you know, like it usually starts off as something like, oh, how can you imitate the American accent so well? I can't even <laughs> even try. And they're just like, oh, because you guys have media everywhere. And like you guys are the ones that have, you know, all the TV shows and all the movies. And so, you know, we grew up watching your stuff. But I've always been curious. There are so many markets outside of ours. There's actually one of your, I guess, colleague, but in a completely other department who had talked about the Latinx community being the biggest untapped content yeah content but also audience yeah the biggest untapped audience that nobody has successfully really tapped into (laughs) um and what can be done about that you know because you need i mean again like through the uh, tiffany is it through the Mm -hmm. efforts of tiffany and and stuff like ion i mean that's how you do it. Like you, you, you tap into it by by getting those people in those positions that can say, actually, this is the right way that you do this. La Casa de, de Papel is Spanish language content, and it's one of our biggest shows at Netflix. Okay, yeah. And that's been a Latin explosion. There uh-huh. needs to be many, many more. Yeah. But we also have a creative executive Mm. named Paco that Mm. went from the Spanish office to Mexico. And I know there's a lot brewing down there. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a lot to come. Yeah. That's incredible. And just the way they made La Casa globally popular. And there's a show out of Germany called dark that went globally popular and now squid game out of Korea. I think we'll see some incredible 
Latin content continue to expand. I've been loving seeing the diversity that is on there in your cast. And from what it sounds like now, I mean, all the way up to the top where it needs to be as well. So, okay, this is another question. Tell me a story of when something went wrong and what you did to fix it or grow from it. I will say more of a challenge than something that went wrong. And in it being a challenge, stuff went wrong. We shot part of extraction in India. And very few foreigners have ever gone in India and said, we're going to do like a 50, 60 day shoot. It's usually you get in, you get the exteriors you need and you get back out again. That's because there's not a huge structure on the ground. Mm -hmm. We went into India, we were in Mumbai, and that was one thing. Then we went further away to a town called Ahmedabad. It's the Gandhi capital of India. Oh, no. So that's where it gets a little crazy. And maybe that's where we went wrong. We took a crew into the dengue capital of India and had people on the crew getting dengue. And they were doing fast action sequences through rural dirt roads, which are in the outskirts of India. So there's a lot of fecal matter and God knows what else besides that dengue. Oh, my stars. And we just leaned into risk like Netflix does and shot there for three weeks. But we had to build out a really robust safety plan. And the producer of the movie was at the hospital so much checking on crew members that had dengue. They ended up setting up a little room for him. Oh my gosh. So on my side, I was terrified that I had a show in India with crew members who are precious cargo over yeah. there getting sick. And I ended up getting on a plane and going out there myself and just showing support and trying to get out of that small town as soon as we could. Are there waivers for that? Like, what do you have the crew do? No, there's not waivers for that. When you're there, you're just there, you're in the environment and you're leaning into risk fully. And it's the company's responsibility and the producers to make sure everyone's being as safe as possible. How do you give the director everything he wants? It was a he, Mm -hmm. but make sure your crew is safe and happy. So Mm -hmm. it was nail biting. People at Netflix remember me telling stories in meetings, but I finally did get on a plane and and go out there and, you know, showed studio support. One thing that happened in the last little bit was a bit of a a sidestep in the industry when it came to an almost strike with crew safety and, you know, that kind of thing. And I talked with a friend who is, again, more on the executive side of things. And for him, it was more a breathe a sigh of relief because they're not, you know, going to strike. We have our workers. We can we can carry on with stuff. But then you have the crew members who are on the ground who are just saying, like, you know, there's nothing that that's very much different. What are your thoughts on how that would affect things? We're aware of all things safety, but first and foremost is the hours, mm-hmm. because The shorter, more efficient day you have, people can go home and see family and be happy and get rest and come back to work rested and feeling good about their work day. Mm. We were very supportive in the change of work hours that came out of the negotiations with the AMPTP. Mm. What I noticed, the most important thing is the studios stand behind it. You know what's even more important than that? The director and the producers on the ground executing it. 
Mm. So I can say, make sure your crew gets 12 hour turnaround. That's a studio stance. Mm -hmm. We have hundreds of shows globally. Mm -hmm. We don't have a microscope on them. We trust our partners. Mm -hmm. We need to know that they are on the ground Mm -hmm. making sure they're implementing all of the safety rules directly themselves. They're the ones that fought for it and wanted for it. And they actually have to make sure they're implementing it on set. And we need that strong partnership to make Mm -hmm. sure it's happening. I'd have to speak up here and say that it's also important to speak up. I mean, I think that talking with some of the more seasoned veterans of the industry, they're talking about like, you know, I've kind of noticed a shift where these kids are coming up and they're not afraid. They're not afraid to stand up and say, Hey, you're, you're being ridiculous. You need to, you need to give us enough hours so we can be safe. And I love to preach boundaries on this, (laughs) on this show. So it's, it is good to hear from somebody at Netflix that it's something that you guys stood behind. Very high priority. The last listener question we have from Instagram is what is the most challenging part of your job? People managing, people managing between the producers that I work with, my staff that works for me, all the Netflix partners I have cross-functionally. It's making sure people are informed, communicated with, heard, and managed in a way where you're delivering good, bad information, where they're hearing you and it's resonating and you're figuring out a resolution. A lot of my job is putting out fires every day. Mm. So it's going and talking to people, figuring out what the problem is, and resolving it. And it's all people management and it's tough because whatever their personality is, whether they're tough or really kind, you just have to be making sure it's important to me, honestly, that people are happy at work and feeling good every day. And that is an effort on my part, Mm -hmm. especially when I keep saying this, but there's a lot of good things happening and bad things. Or I have to say, you can't have this, or you can't go there. The show can't do this. We can't give you more money Mm -hmm. managing those conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I say it's tough because it's the most important part of the job and it can be really tricky at times. On a very, very, very small micro, micro scale of what you're talking about, I produced an indie, like micro budget indie feature this summer and, you know, getting everybody who you know, who is wanting to go in a certain direction. In some ways, it is the most joyous thing to be able to like, hey, you want to go in this direction? Well, like, not only will you go in this direction, but you're going to do it 150%. Like, go be you. And it's awesome, right? And then having those other conversations, you have to be tough as nails to be in your job. As a woman, and as a woman of color, I know that I'm seen differently, but I walk in the room like I'm not. So when I walk in the room and there's the producers and the director, I know they're thinking, oh, it's a woman. Oh, it's a woman of color. But I always say, get your foot in the door and then show them what you got. Because I walk in like, I know I'm equal and I know I know as much as you all. And I sit at the table. And once I start talking, I see people kind of relax and their shoulders drop. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, she's not going to be a girly girl or she's not going to mother me or whatever was going through their minds. Mm -hmm. You're there to get a job. Yeah. Somebody said to me when I first became a production supervisor, I was sitting at my desk and I had about 10 grown men in my office arguing about staffing for their departments, two different departments. One of them got 
pissed at the group and was like, we shouldn't all be in here getting frustrated and talking to Noel like this. And he walked out of the room and I finally resolved it with the guys and they left. And I went home and said to a friend that night, told them the whole story. And they said, did you realize when you were talking to this group, they were all white men that they were looking at a black woman sitting on the other side of the chair. Of course, it crossed my mind, but I didn't let it change my process or the way I acted or anything I did. And that's just something I have to deal with probably every day, mm. being in a higher level management position. Yeah, I've I've frequently found myself sitting in a meeting and again, it's not something that crosses my mind that often, but then they'll mention something about like, oh, ha ha ha, you know, like we'll get the other, you know, like pieces of the the team together and you know all that stuff. And I'll look around at our team and I'm just like, oh, I'm 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 the only female. <laughs> and, and I not, belong here. <laughs> and I belong here. Yeah. And it's kind of weird to, to say that. I, I really appreciate what you had to say about that because I was I was up for a professor position and I ended up going in a different different direction because you know, it was a, a different time in my life. And I was talking with one of the students and I was just like, Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm I'm just not gonna take this gig, but it would have been it would have been great. To, to see you around more often, that kind of thing. She was like, there aren't really a lot of female role models that we have around the school yet. And it would have been cool to just see from a female professor what yeah. life would be like. And I didn't really even think about it until then that, oh, that's something, you know? That's definitely something. Like there are people who are going through this and we're half of the industry, you know? Or... We have a long way to go. We, you know, like we, we do have a long way to go to even get to have, but, but yeah, (laughs) anyway, um, thank you so much for your thoughts on that. What questions should I have asked you? I like that we talked about inclusion stuff and being a woman, because I think that that is a hot topic that can't go anywhere. And I think that the Me Too movement broke down walls that won't go back up. It's like the Berlin Wall. George Floyd's death made an impact that should have been made a long time ago, but it's also knocked down walls. We got to make sure those walls don't go back up. Mm -hmm. So we have to keep talking about it. We have to keep it top of discussion in the bigger meetings. Mm -hmm. And we have to help keep getting people in the door, training, educating, and putting out that olive branch. And it really scares me to think things could ever go back to the way they were. I don't want these years of inclusion to be a trend. I want it to be a permanent systemic change in our society. Mm -hmm. That's why my face lit up when you talked about inclusion, because I never thought in my lifetime that I would see these kinds of changes. So I just want to help make sure they don't go away and that that your generation and the younger generations grasp onto that and, and just keep the doors open. They can never close again. That was a fantastic closing statement, but I must ask you this anticlimactic question. How do people find you or follow your work? Shameless plug off. How do they find me or follow my work? I'm on Instagram at noeldg16. And then like what what project are you excited about right now? I just moved over to series. So on the film side, I was working on Extraction 2. Very excited. They're going to elevate the action beyond belief. Mm-hmm. 
And there's a project with Bradley Cooper called Maestro that is a passion project that will be at all the award shows when that one launches. It's just beautiful. Ma Rainey is one of my favorite projects that I did. So that's Mm. been out, but near and dear to my heart. Mm. The series team that I'm going to join now, I'm part of the overall deals team. Mm. And they, the overall deals that are part of that team are, I know the Obamas have higher ground. Mm. Regina King just signed. Wow. 21 laps and the Duffer brothers who make Stranger Things, mm. Harry and Megan. Wow. All kinds <laughs> of exciting deals. So yeah. I can't wait to get over there. It sounds incredible. We cannot wait to see what you have next. Thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. I really appreciate the things you had to say. It was really fun talking with you. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this interview, follow us right here and on Instagram. Ask us questions and check out more episodes at thepracticalfilmmaker.com. Be well and God bless. We'll see you next time on The Practical Filmmaker.